Acts chapter 17. Let's pick up our reading. We're in Acts 17. Let's begin reading back in verse 22. And we'll read through the duration of the chapter. Acts 17 verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And here's the sermon that we're going to see this, this week, this day. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, check this out, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they would seek God. And perhaps fill their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given, note this word, assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from them, their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among also who were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Have you noticed in our day that things are certainly not what they used to be. Now you hear our gray heads say that, don't we? It's just, it's just not the way it used to be. And we think back years ago, and modernity, if it's done anything, it's characterized, or it has been characterized by a belief that truth did exist and that it could be discovered. Now I think that was the case up until around the mid-60s and 1970s. We, uh, before the era of postmodernism, truth was there and it could be discovered in most people's minds. But in postmodernism, on the other hand, they're convinced, and I'll have to say they're convinced, at least tentatively, that truths are socially and personally constructed. Therefore, truth is subjective and relative and changing. Our world doesn't believe as a whole that there is an absolute standard of truth and right as we see given to us in the Word of God. In their opinion, in the world's opinion, there's no great story. There's no great meta-narrative 
to define for us who we are, why we are here, and where we are going. The 21st century is not much like the 20th century in that regard. But I will tell you this, the 21st century is a lot like the 1st century uh, that Paul effectively evangelized with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we ought to feel good about, it's a great day to live. Because the Lord God Almighty is not afraid of the culture. His salvation can reach anybody, anywhere, anytime. As you see in this text, the blood of Jesus can cover the sins of the vilest sinner, the Arapagite, and the philosopher, and whoever that may be. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight, and the blood of Jesus can change anybody, anywhere, anytime. So today, we have a model for ministry. How do we engage the culture that we live in that is steeped in a postmodernism like we've never seen before? Remember, Paul is at the Arapa, uh, he's at the Arapagite, or that's the guy that's going to get saved, Arapagus. He's there preaching the word of God, and he's standing before what we would call the elite intelligentsia of the day. It'd be like your pastor being invited to preach at the prayer breakfast before Congress. Wouldn't that be awesome? And to preach a sermon like this text has. Or to perhaps stand before the elite agnostic or atheistic educators that exist in our country. That would be similar to what Paul is doing. And so Paul is going to establish a point of contact and a point of conflict. What's the contact that Paul establishes? I notice that you're very religious. And obviously mankind is incurably religious. And so he establishes that point of contact, but then he establishes a point of conflict with them. The God that's unknown to you is actually a God that is knowable, right? What you worship in ignorance, false gods of silver and gold and sculptures or whatever else, he is actually known to us. So Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you, which catapults him in to the sermon. Now, I want to remind you of something. Don Carson has done some really good work in studying behind the scenes to find out what actually took place at the Oropagus. And normally when someone spoke there, they expected you to speak from two to two and a half hours. Now, we don't have that much content here, do we? We say, how in the world? But I want to remind you that I think this is more of a summary outline given by Luke of the essentials of the gospel, the essentials of how Paul approached the situation, more so than a total exhaustive understanding of it. So we may ask ourselves, how did Paul fill in the gaps? Well, just read his 13 epistles, right? And you can probably get an understanding of how Paul filled in the gaps. But I think it's important for us to know that because Paul is essentially going to explain to us what a Christian worldview looks like. Now, we talked about the Epicureans. They felt like Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If it feels good, do it, was their philosophy. And then you have the Stoics, who had a stiff upper lip, and they knew that they seemed to think the world was a simple, a chaotic situation of some order, some chaos, some order. But in the end, they believed in fatalism. The best thing you can do for an Epicurean is keep yourself free from pain and have all the pleasure you can have. And a Stoic would say, well, you just need to make sure you keep your place in the world because it's all going to pan out the way... Uh, the world, uh, whatever it may happen. But God's not in control. That's what they believe. In the face of that, 
Paul will explain the Christian worldview. And what he's going to do is take the gospel. And he's going to put it into the bigger storyline of the entire Bible. And he's going to show the reasonableness of our faith. Folks, we don't have a faith that's a blind leap. When we say faith in the Bible, we're not talking about roll your dice and figure out what you believe. We're talking about a faith that God gives you. And we're talking about a faith that is in the teaching of the Word of God that is 100% historically accurate. And no one has ever disproved that fact. So it's not a leap of faith. It is, and Paul's going to explain that. He's going to teach us the reasonableness of our faith. He's going to teach the exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, believing in Christ. And then he's going to talk about the necessity of repentance. You have to place your faith individually in the Redeemer himself, who is the judge and the Redeemer of all mankind. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us this introduction, and he's going to walk us through. I have six points and four points of application. Are you ready? This means yes, right? We're just going to go right down the teaching narrative. First, he said, God is the creator. Notice how he begins. We won't read every verse again each time. But in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. So Paul is going to bring up first and foremost, which is totally antithetical to what these people believe, That he's preaching to. And he's going to say to the Athenians. Your worldview is that there's no God. And if there is a God you can't know him. But I want to tell you. The God I know. The God of the Bible. The only God that exists. Made the world. And everything that is in it. So in their worldview. There were lots and lots of gods. G. Small g. S. on the end. Who had their turn in the creation. They thought that if you had a God of rain or a God of storms or whatever that may be, and they would have given that God that they had made out of their own hands the credit for it. Paul says, no, there is one Lord who made heaven and earth, and here's the deal. These temples you have cannot contain Him. Right? Our God cannot be contained in a temple. We learned that all the way through the Old Testament. In Solomon's dedicatory prayer, For the actual temple, Solomon acknowledges before God, we're building this temple, but it cannot contain you. It cannot contain you, nor confine you. And so the God, our God, is not the type you can walk up to and touch, lest you die. We've learned that, haven't we? There's no question. No one has seen God at any time and lived in all of His glory. Now, the only Son of God has Revealed him to us. So when he walked on the face of the earth. Certainly yes. They saw God incarnate walking on the earth. But the God that we're talking about. Can't be picked up like a silver bowl. Or a cup. Or anything like that. Or confined in a temple. There's no silver. There's no gold that communicate. Can communicate to us. The reality of our God. Why? Because our God is. Here's a big word for you. Transcendent. God does not fit into these little, tiny, puny temples. He cannot be confined. He cannot be contained. He's the God of the universe. He created all things. Don't be afraid to acknowledge that particular point with those you come in contact with in this world who who teach uh, uh, Darwinianism or uh, natural selection or whatever that might be. All you have to do is hit them directly, right up front. 
God created the world and everything that is in it. That's the first thing Paul says. Number two, he says God is the self-sufficient God and the provider of all things. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in it. Note Note those words. He is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. Now, this is a direct message to first century Athenians, those pagan philosophers, and it's a lesson to the 21st century. And let me say this, it's a lesson to evangelical Baptist-going church members. This is a lesson for all of us this morning, that he's not served as though he needs anything. People think that they can serve God... And in some way, you're actually contributing to God in such a way that you add meaning to His glory. Forget that. You cannot come into this church and add to His glory. He's already glorious. He, he, he needs absolutely nothing. He is totally 100% self-sufficient. The Bible presents our God as the self-sufficient God who doesn't need any. Now, we call what we're doing today a fill-in-the-blank. Worship. That's what we call it, a worship service. And I sure pray that what we think about a service of worship to our God is actually biblical. However, there, are, there is a way in which it is certainly unbiblical. If you come in here and think that by any means what you contribute to this service, you contribute to a God who actually needs that given to Him then you're using worship and service in an unbiblical sense. This text makes that unequivocally clear. You can't argue with the passage. To serve God is not to contribute to God because He has needs. Uh, The terminology of servanthood in the Bible is actually a bondservant. You know what that means? It means you're a slave to Him and you need Him. We need our God. And that terminology is a master and a slave. A master and a servant, meaning... Who was it that provided the food and the clothing and all the provisions that we need? It is our master who does that for us. So we're coming to this church as a worship service because we need our God. We're not coming here because we can add to him and give to him because he needs something. As these people went into the temple of Zeus and the Parthenon and did all these things, they literally thought they were adding something to their God, whether it be Zeus or anyone else. They did it to add to the reputation of the God they thought that existed that doesn't, that they had formed out of hands. And Paul says to those guys, you can't add to this God. He's the creator of the world. He is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. You don't add to Him. He sustains you. Right? He gives you breath and life. And without Him, you're not alive. He's the one who provides all things for you. He's not dependent on you. You are dependent on Him. Recently, Natalie has been listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preach sermons. He died in the 80s. Uh, He wrote perhaps the greatest preaching book that I've ever read called Preaching and Preachers. What he means by that is, it's just not the preaching of the Word that's important, but the preacher who preaches the Word has to be right with God too. What an awesome book that is. Just... Oh, you just wish you had that kind of material written today. What a great book. But he's, she had been listening to some of his sermons about the nearness of God and about the fact that 
how we need His presence so much. And that terminology there of of behold our God and, and the vision of who God is that we just sang is something, folks, that we so desperately need to understand that our God is self-sufficient. He is on His throne. And what we need is the presence of God among us. We need His presence. He's going to speak more of that. But He is self-sufficient in Himself. Number three, God is the ruler of the nations. In 1726... Again, this is in direct antithesis to what they believed. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Third point, God is the ruler of the nations. Again, how did they think? Well, they really believed, as Greeks, that they emerged from a special kind of soil. S-O-I-L. Check this. We we hear the terminology in scientific lingo of a primordial soup. That man some kind of, some way came out of a a stagnant pool of water. Some amoeba strung up and then you had man. Well, really? Right? But here they believed that that same, that soil, they came up from... The Greeks had a special soil. How about that? And they thought that they came from that. They emerged. And everybody on the face of the earth, they saw as lesser. Because they're not made from this special soil. Here's what Paul, here's what the, Paul says in his sermon. He gives an antithesis. Everybody came from one man. Did y'all see that? And from one man, God created all the races of the entire world. You know, we have a tendency to think, We're born from American soil, right? And I'm proud with Ray Stevens to be an American. Didn't he sing that, Ray Stevens? I am proud, but I also understand what the text of the Scripture says. He's the ruler of the nations. As a matter of fact, God puts you where you were born. God put everybody else in this world where they were born. He is the ruler of the nations. Everybody came from one man, and from one man came all the races. Furthermore, it is God Himself who sovereignly determines their borders and the boundaries of their times and their habitations. That's our God, folks. Creator, self-sufficient, who actually drew out your parameters of where you would live when you were born on the face of this earth. That's exactly what the text says. No such thing as racial superiority. Just because you're an American. No such thing whatsoever. They thought they had the greatest military in all the world at the time. Well, earlier than this, they did. And they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. And Paul effectively says to them, God sovereignly determined where you would live, who you are, where you would live, where you would be. And you've come from one man. And that too was sovereignly determined by God. That Adam and Eve would be the progenitors of all the human race. Who did that? Our God did that. God is also knowable. Verse 27. The Bible says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. God is knowable. The God who made men to dwell on the face of the earth also made man to seek Him. Notice, of course, there's a problem in the seeking. 
Y'all see it in the text? If perhaps they can feel their way toward him to find him. In Greek, or the grammatical structure, this is important. Here, it implies an absolute unlikely possibility or doubtful expectation. In other words, man left to himself will not seek the Lord. He will actually grope in the darkness, like this text says, which is representative of the sinful nature. Yet, God made you and established the places of your habitation. And He also designed that you would seek Him. And you're supposed to be seeking Him and looking for Him. But in reality, what we're doing if we're without Christ is we're groping in the darkness. Aren't you so thankful for the Savior who came to rescue us from that darkness we are in? So here's the irony here of the Athenians who possessed no frame of reference for a God that can come down. You talk about a come down kind of gospel. That the God of eternity who made the world. Y'all do know the Son of God made the worlds. Right? And everything. That the Son of God Himself would condescend to this world that He made. And become a creature in this world. Fully God and fully man. And live on the face of the earth. That's a come down from heaven kind of gospel. Aren't you thankful for that kind of gospel? Of Jesus Christ. They had no understanding of a God who would come near and come down because they didn't believe that God was imminently involved. So here's the deal. He's transcendent. You can't confine Him. You can't contain Him in a temple. But oh, He came down to us in the person of His Son so that we would no longer grope in darkness. The transcendent God who made heaven and earth is closer to every single one of us than we could ever imagine. As a matter of fact, He walked with the Jews and the Pharisees and everyone else on the face of the earth for 33 years. He's both transcendent and he is imminent. So we see exaltation, high and lifted up. But we see nearness and closeness from our God. Number, four, number five, God is the father of humanity. Paul adds, for in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, we are absolutely dependent upon this God. And Paul even becomes real tactful here. You notice he... Uh, I guess we perhaps could think that at this point, why didn't Paul just pull out the Old Testament and begin to teach divine revelation? Because the Israelites had it, and that's the key. He's not in the synagogue here. He's at the Areopagite, or Areopagus, and he's preaching the word to them, but he doesn't give scriptural reference or chapter like he does in most sermons. He's connecting the truth of the gospel with them where they are. And so he says to them, even your poets believe that there has to be a God behind the humanity. That we just didn't spring up from some kind of soil or primordial soup. So he deals with the pagan poets. For indeed, that's the quote, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is driving home the point that a biblical worldview is antithetical to all that the Athenians actually believed. But he's being real tactful. He's showing that I know who your philosophers are. So he grabs one of the lines, for we are all his offspring. One of their great poets had said that statement. Paul piggybacks off that statement and begins to show them that the Lord God Almighty is the father of all humanity. So he clearly states, we did not make ourselves. Y'all see how important that is? We did not come from special soil. Even your poets recognize that we have an origin. And that origin comes from God. He then says, being then God's offspring. He's quoting it straight out. Now he's not saying that in a redemptive fashion. That's not the 
the, the fatherhood of all the world, meaning that everybody's going to be saved. That's not what that means in the redemptive sense. What that means is that in a creative sense, God is our Father. Nobody exists in this world that didn't spring forth from God's creative ability. Straight from Adam and Eve. And he means this. And why does he add, he adds this. We ought not think that the divine being, why does he say it like this? Because they're worshiping things. Gold and silver and stone and images that are formed by the art of the imagination of man. And not from God. And so, in one single verse, he undermines the entire scope of the Athenian idolatry. Because he says to them, you did not come from soil. God made you. Therefore, how can you enter a temple and think that God can be worshipped as a piece of gold or silver or anything else? He cannot be. In view of your constitution and make up his humanity. He's almost screaming at them. I can almost feel Do you think you came from soil? Special soil? Yeah, you know, God formed Adam, of course, out of dirt, but this is a little bit different, okay? Do you think for a moment that there's not a creative ability of a divine God who actually made humanity? Just look at yourself. Have you ever studied the human eye? I'm asking you a question. You need to look it up. You think that came from some kind of mutation? Or the way we look, or the way we act? If there's a mutation in the world, then why do you have all kinds of kinds? You don't have a cat dog, no matter what the TV show said. (laughs) There's a reason for this. A transitional form has never, ever, ever been found. There's a reason for that. God created it in kinds. And that's exactly what we see in our world. It's lived out before us. And so in humanity, he's saying, even your constitution, your makeup as a human your intellectual prowess, and your spiritual moral abilities, you ought to look and know that God cannot be reduced to a piece of gold or silver or anything else. Even if you have an unregenerate heart this morning, the fact that God exists should be screaming at you to say you don't reduce Him down to a piece of gold. You cannot do that. We ought to all revolt against the idea of worshiping something with our own hands and what our own hands has made. So this is a polemic of the prophets, right? If you read through the prophets, their polemic was this. Isaiah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You go out in the woods and you cut down a tree with your own hands. And you take that piece of wood and you make it into an idol and you begin to worship that thing. And, and Isaiah's like, how foolish are you? With your hands, you'd whack down a tree. And then with your hands, you form something out of it. And then you began to worship. How foolish is that? The very fact that you're made in the image of God should scream to you that that is wrong. So Paul says we are his offspring. We come from God. So you must see the folly of their thinking. To think, uh, I mean, hey, you got beautiful bowls. Uh, you got beautiful things. You've got sculptures and you've got all these artifacts. You've got all these things that you're worshiping. He's not denying the fact that they look pretty amazing. Yet to worship anything like that is utter folly in the face of who our God is. The God, this God is not to be formed with the art and thought of man. Now, Paul's going to get to what really rubs them the wrong way. I mean, everything so far would have been shocking to a polytheistic pagan philosopher But here, beginning in verse 30, he gets down to the brass tacks of the matter. This is what's going to cause them to bristle 
and looked down their glasses a little more at Paul. Right? We joked about that. Because they're, they're looking down their noses and they're thinking, who is this? Remember, they called him an idol babbler. They called him a seed picker. Well, this is really going to upset them. God, number six, is the judge and the redeemer. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Let me show you something. If you'll flip back in, in 14, verse 16, before we read on. Look, this is not the first time. Good to hear the Bible, pages turning. Chapter 14, verse 16. This is not the first time he said it. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And now, Paul says to them, verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He begins his indictment against the Athenians by reminding them that it is idolatry. He, he, he puts their idolatry face forward, and then Paul keeps his audience in mind. He's not using a scroll of Isaiah. Okay? What he's dealing with is biblical truth. Not with chapter and verse, but in his mind, given this biblical truth to the Athenians, because they only have general revelation. Right? These Greeks do not have the Bible. They only have the fact that they should have a knowledge that God exists because God is great and glorious. Romans chapter 1. And so Paul is making this bridge to them. And here is the application. It's one thing to talk about the existence of God and the true living God, but it's another thing to say, now this God requires something of you. Y'all see that? I mean, in Paul's understanding, I proved to you that God exists, but Paul didn't stop the sermon there. I mean, we get into an argument with people about, well, God exists, right? This God that exists commands something from us. This God that exists has a command upon this world. That's why, that's why books have been written about that. What Jesus commands from the world. That seems to be ironic when we are the ones commanding something from our God to tell Him who He is and what He ought to do. But God commands something from us. Again, the Scripture says He's overlooked times of ignorance. It doesn't mean that God was indifferent to their idolatry. But according to the Bible, He was letting the nations go their own way. He was letting them go their own way. And in letting them go their own way, they actually were under judgment. So Paul exhorts this pagan philosophical guild to realize that all of what they're doing, all the statues, it's all idolatry. And it's all a demonstration of the fact that God has overlooked your ignorance for centuries. But here's what the Bible says. No more. Are y'all listening this morning? It's going to get personal here. No more. God has set an appointed judge. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is no more ignorance. God will not overlook anymore. Because God has established the person. And what does he say? Everyone, everywhere, in mankind, needs to, say it, repent. Everybody needs to repent. To repent is a mental and moral word. It is to turn from error and from falsehood to the truth and to then serve the living God. It is a whole-souled Turning, S-O-U-L-E-D. It's your entire being turning to the Lord. And that's what happens when you turn from error and falsehood and you turn to the truth. You turn from sin and self, sufficiency and self, 
and you turn to God only for salvation. Now folks, this is not given as a suggestion from the Bible. It's given as a command to everybody in this building that you must repent. Why? The Bible's going to tell us. To all the intelligentsia of the entire world, they must repent. Why? Because God has fixed a day. The reason why you repent is because God has given an authoritative command. An appointment has been made. A day has been made where God will judge the entire world in righteousness. Please remember, there are no theological or philosophical parameters for them to wrap their mind around what Paul is saying. They just can't handle that fact. That philosophical guild. you telling me that there's someone that created the entire world and now there's an appointment day where I'm going to be judged? That's exactly what Paul is saying. Remember, they're image bearers, right? And because you're an image bearer of God, then deep down inside of you, you know that judgment day is coming. Even if you're lost today. According to Romans 1, there's this understanding because God has written that law in your mind and in your conscience sake. And although an atheist may say God does not exist, God says to an atheist, you can't be an atheist because I've given you a witness. So to God, there are no atheists. God has given them a witness in their mind and heart. So the fact of the matter is, even though they say there is no God, which David and I talked about this morning, isn't it interesting that they disprove their theory? Why are they even worried about it if God doesn't exist? Why are they trying to argue the non-existence of a God that doesn't exist? Why should they care? Because inside of them, there's a moral compass given by the God of eternity, wherein they understand that judgment day is coming. Now he says the resurrection. He's appointed a judge. What's his name? Jesus Christ. And then he actually says that God raised this man from the dead, and he's appointed a judge. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ is alive from the dead? Acts 2, the grave could not hold him. But what is predicated upon a resurrection? That a death occurred. More importantly, death by crucifixion. So he's given them the entire gospel and understanding of the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But everything meets its fountainhead in the bodily, not phantom, but bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has appointed Jesus as our judge by raising him from the dead. Look at the phrase once more. Of this he has given full assurance or proof by raising him from the dead. You know, normally in apologetics, we're trying to prove the resurrection by our arguments. Paul flips that over. He says it's actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the proof that Jesus is God and that judgment day is coming and that Jesus Christ is the only one that can redeem us from that curse. He's appointed the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Paul, the resurrection was the proof. I'm telling you now, folks, unless they can put a body in that tomb, you might as well not talk to me. And that body will never be back in the tomb. Right? The tomb is empty. What an incredible historical and theological understanding. All they had to do was find the body and Christianity is over. But there's not a body there because he came forth alive. So... He's appointed as judge and savior. And Paul drives us home of the need to repent. Now, what's the response? Some are like, hey, this is ridiculous. Right? 1 Corinthians is foolishness to the world to think about a crucified Messiah that lived 2,000 years ago. On top of that, a Jewish man that came and lived 2,000 years ago. And you're telling me that he went to the cross and died and that he can save us from our sins? This man? 
Some ridiculed and some mocked. That's what's going to happen to us in the world if we preach Jesus. Notice how he does the storyline all the way from creation to Christ. Storyline of the Bible. It is creation, fall, and redemption. Three words can sum up the whole Bible, right? Creation, fall of man, and the redemption of Christ. That's what Paul is actually preaching. Some said, some scoffed, some ridiculed, some said, we'd like to hear you again on this matter. That's pretty noble, isn't it? We'd like to hear a little bit more. And then the Bible says Paul leaves. I wonder how Paul felt that day when he preached. Some ignorant scholars have said that Paul really didn't do a good job. Because he didn't mention fully in the text the crucifixion of Christ. And therefore when he gets to the Galatians, he says to them, I will not preach anything to you except Christ and Him crucified. So some liberal scholars say, well, that's just what's wrong with Paul. He, he learned his lesson there. And this time, folks, how do you think those Athenians thought about that sermon? It, it blew them completely away. And again, remember, this is a summary. I promise you, Paul preached way, way more than what you're seeing in this text of Scripture. But some ridiculed, some wanted to hear more. But praise God, right there, Aragopagus, right there, intelligentsia of the day, God saves Dr. Aropagite. Y'all see it in the text? One of the philosophers himself that day heard the truth and was gloriously saved. And also Demarius and others came to, came to know Jesus Christ. We might be ridiculed and mocked. Some may want to hear more and we ought to give more. But people are going to come to Jesus when we preach the gospel. Right? When we preach the gospel. Now, quickly, and we're done. I know I'm over time. I'll give it back to you because I'm not preaching tonight. All right? Okay, here it is. Start where people are. This is real practical. won't take but a second. Application. Start where people are. Paul made a point of contact. Did he not? He made a point of conflict with them. Uh, religiously and moved the conversation spiritually. Spiritual matters are inescapable because humans are incurably religious. People want to talk religion. Uh, though the atheist may say God does not exist, creation and conscience, according to the Bible, testify to them that our God does exist. Again, the atheistic words reflect his own dislike for God. That he feels the need to address that topic at all suggests that is something that is wrong with his particular theory. Romans 1 says that mankind, by nature, suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. Begin where people are. Right? Find that point of contact. Begin where people are. Number two, hit creation question head on. Hit the creation question. Either God is eternal or matter is eternal. Y'all do realize that, right? Even though everything you see in this world just came absolutely out of nowhere, and that, that nowhere has to be eternal, or God is eternal. I vote God. Amen? You only have two options. Man, I'm telling you, it takes way more faith to believe that mess they teach. That's unreal. Some of the things that, which doesn't match whatsoever with the creation that we're looking at. There's only one, no other option. Paul asserts that God made everything, and that includes human beings. He's the creator. He makes the creatures. And it follows that we probably have a certain obligation to this God if he exists. Right? So that's why it's so important to start with creation. Start and hit it head on. Number three, appeal to conscience and our sense of right and wrong. Paul affirms that God 
is actually quite near to us. He's given us spiritual sensitivities. Even in a lost man, there's a groping in the darkness that a lost man has. And he does this to allude to the sinful nature. And he interjects the fact that we have to repent. And he wisely draws attention to that sense of morality. That's something in human beings that's not in any other thing of God's creation. God made all mankind in His image. He made them in His image. So we intuitively, as a basic proper belief, would say that what happened on September 11, 2001, was wrong. Hello, folks. Would y'all say that? How do you know that's wrong? Because of some soup you were made from? How do you know that? That that's wrong? That's because the God of eternity has given you a moral compass. That's why you know something like that is wrong. Paul will expound that in Romans 2.15. And his answer will be that God's law is written on the human heart with our conscience bearing witness to it. So our conscience is shouting to us in our hearts, there must be a moral creator and other for us to be moral thinking people. For the most part. Number four, move to Christ, His cross and the resurrection. Hey folks, it all comes down to Jesus. Doesn't it? And that's where Paul moves the sermon. What will mankind do with the Lord Jesus Christ? How will we respond to Him? How do you respond to the sinless life of the Creator God coming down and living here? How do you respond to His death upon the cross for sinners? How do you respond to the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The offense to Christianity must never be our methods or traditions. If people turn away from the gospel, we need to make absolutely sure that the gospel they're turning away from is the cross of Christ and an empty tomb. Are y'all getting this? If they turn away from something, let it be the cross and the empty tomb. Because that is the gospel that this church is supposed to be preaching. Again, Paul was mocked that day on Mars Hill. Jesus told him he would be. Right? He would be mocked. Let's go and tell people about Jesus. Let's go into a, how can we say this? Let's take the unchanging Christ to an ever-changing culture and do so without fear just like Paul did. Amen? All right. To God be the glory. Isn't the Word of God good? As as, uh, Job would say, as David would say, it's honey to our lips. By the way, When you come into this church, I said that about the fact that in a worship service, you're not adding to God. You're not coming in here to give him something as if he has need. Then why did Jesus receive gold, frankincense, and myrrh? He surely didn't need it, right? They're intensifiers. That the Magi treasured Jesus above things. Are y'all listening? Even when you give an offering in a church... It's not to help God out. The reason you give an offering is to say to the Lord, I value you, Lord God, more than this money. Are y'all listening? When we come into this auditorium, when we come together corporately, and as you live your life during the, the week, because all of life is worship, you're not worshiping Him and serving Him as if you can add to Him. You're doing this as intensifiers to show your love for Jesus. That you treasure Him more than anything else in life. Father, help us. God, help me. To treasure you more than anything else in life. Lord, I cannot add to you. You are self-sufficient. God, help us as a people this day to bow low before our transcendent God. And thank you that you came near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
God, thank you so much for that. Lord, maybe for the scoffer or the mocker or the person even under the sound of my voice that may be ridiculing the message, God, give them eyes to see. Tune their hearts to wonder about who you are. God, work in them. For Christians, God, help us to see this as a model to effectively witness and evangelize in a world that hates Jesus, that does not want the truth. God, help us start with creation and move to Jesus, just like the Bible does. If someone is lost under the sound of my voice, God, let them hear. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. That's your words, Lord Jesus. Come to me. And may they do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.